It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. We were discouraged with all the negativity in the world and decided to focus on finding some good out there. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast with me, Teresa. And me, Amy. We're two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So episode 87, part two, I'm going to go over Jackie Robinson again. Last time I talked about him being a ball player. This time I'm going to talk about him being a civil rights activist. But anything fun happened last week? Father's Day. Yeah. That's, yeah, we... You guys went on a hike. We Well, yeah, a few of us went on a hike, Trying Creek, Mm -hmm. and it was super muddy. And then we saw that. That's where Craig proposed, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah, right now. (laughs) It was heat of summer. Oh, yeah. yeah. But anyway. Yeah, so that was Tangent. Yeah, no, no, that was fun. And then we saw the new Jurassic Park Dominion. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of kind of fun. The trailer looks really good. It was good. It was good. It's kind of funny. We ran into a family right behind us, a family of five. It's so funny. We're like, hey. You're five, too. You're five, too. So, um. We didn't really do much for Father's Day because my poor brother oh. and his family have COVID. Oh, so, God. I don't yeah, know. it's been kind of since my parents were around them, they just got back from Disneyland. We just start kind yeah. of holding off. So, I get that. Dang it. Bummer, though. Yeah. I was watching my favorite show, you know, <laughs> you know, the Today Show with. But it was the segment with Hoda and Jenna, and they were talking with librarian Kathy Bronchima. Bro- Kathy Bronchima is a librarian at Sumas Elementary School in Washington State near the Canadian border. Mm. Sumas Elementary School, including the library, was destroyed during a severe flood last November. The community was devastated after losing their school. Jennifer Frombley, also a librarian, she's from Bernice Vosbeck Elementary in Linden, Washington. So she's about 20, 15, 20 miles away And she heard about Sumas Elementary School's library and wanted to do something and said, you know, I've been really looking for tangible ways to help the families affected by the floods. So Jennifer decided to donate her school's scholastic dollars from a recent book fair, um, close to $2,500 to Sumas Elementary School Library, which is really, really neat. Very generous. But the really cool thing is these two librarians hadn't met. So, So Jenna and Hoda had this little surprise. Mm-hmm. They surprised Kathy with the meeting of the kind librarian who donated her Scholastic money. Plus, Jenna and Hoda presented her with a card from Scholastic awarding Sumas Elementary School $10,000. Oh that's so great. For their library. Their library just opened in March, and I guess the students are ecstatic. There's all, you know, all 170 of them. They were super happy. And new books. New books. Yeah. I mean, I love that. And then I heard another sweet story about a library, Caldwell Public Library in Boise, Idaho. It's bringing literacy to laundromats. It's so, yeah, I think this is awesome. Because some kids probably are hanging out. Yeah, that's what they said. I mean, um, you know, due to the pandemic, some students have been, you know, falling behind. Mm -hmm. So Caldwell Public Library is getting creative and finding ways for kids to learn when they're not at school. Stephanie Bailey White, Idaho State Librarian, said Caldwell Public Library has been participating in a pilot program that places a kid's corner filled with books and select laundromats across Idaho. You know, you're right, because it makes sense. They spend like two hours, two and a half hours doing your laundry and you bring your kids with you. The program is called Laundromat Literacy, and it has plans to grow. And especially with with, uh, statistics like, uh, according to research, if children are not reading at grade level by the end of first grade, 
there's a one in eight chance that they won't catch up to their peers. That's um, my problem. I know. I wasn't a great reader. <laughs> no. but So this program offers children access to books in a really super creative way. Finally, my last little story here is about a local woman here in Portland, Oregon. Nania Woods is launching Portland's first black literacy festival, Freedom Festival, a tribute to freedom in reading. Nania has loved books even before she could walk. Her mom would throw a book to encourage her to walk toward it. So I just think that's really cute. And then in high school, she made up a mini library in her oh locker. She used her uh, shelves in her locker, filled it with books, and had a little sign-up sheet for her classmates <laughs> to check awesome. out the books. So now, you know, she's an adult. Three years ago, she founded uh, Prose Before Bros, which I think is a clever yeah. uh, use of words. Um, a book club for women of color. It has a newsletter of over 400 subscribers. Um, she holds monthly meetings. Attendees not only just connect with books, but sometimes there's like meditation and line dancing. And <laughs> you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. But and now she's uh, now she launched uh, Freedom Festival and timed it to coincide with Juneteenth, a celebration of emancipation from slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a book swap, bring a book, take a book. There was a book drive to collect books for a nonprofit. Portland Books to Prisoners. I'm not familiar with it. We might oh, want to check that yeah. one out. Um, that would be another easy thing. To, yeah, yeah. Collect book. Yeah, do a book drive. But there was story time and other cool activities. They sounded like a lot of fun. Um, and I just, I love all three of these stories of women championing literacy. So. And bringing people together. To be, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Last week, I talked about Jackie Robinson and all that he endured on and off the baseball field to make that happen. Yeah. He was picked not because he was the best player out there, but because he was the best ball player out there with the right character. I love that, yeah. Jackie Robinson made history becoming the first black baseball player in Major League Baseball, a big enough accomplishment in itself. Right, for sure. Yeah. That's big time. Yeah. He could have called it good with that. He opened the door for other athletes, not just in baseball, but in other fields as well. And I so respect that he let his playing and performance do the talking, constantly turning the other cheek when others were cruel. And I say cruel because you just can't describe the things that people did. It's pretty amazing that he only played professionally for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. I have no idea, but that seems like a relatively short time to... You know, it seems like a short career. Right, I know. In baseball. Yeah, I think because I think baseball players can play for they a while. They can play for a while. while. That's what I yeah. thought. But yeah. he must have crammed a lot, yeah. lot in that short time since we still talk about him today. I also commented last week that I don't care much for the game of baseball. Right. I know, like I said, <laughs> un American. But the list of stats and accomplishments on the field, including with Jackie Robinson, just aren't that impressive to me. Right. The Jackie Robinson that inspires me is the one off the field. So in case you missed last week, I noted that a sophomore in college had written into a newspaper about the mistreatment of blacks across the country. That unknown author was Martin Luther King Jr. So this, you know, the whole thing when he started playing ball was before Martin Luther King's rise as a civil rights leader. Robinson was signed on with the Dodgers before Rosa Parks was a household name. And well before the Brown versus Board of Education. So yeah. he was a, a trailblazer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Totally. It's clear why it's a big deal that Branch Ricky signed him on. As sad as it is, with him being the token black baseball player, people would look to him for their opinions of all black people, and they'd be intently, you know, paying attention to everything he did. That's a lot and, of pressure. Exactly. 
most athletes are just concerned about, you know, their career and their field. But he had a whole lot of other things he had to consider. In 1949, he was called to testify before the House of Un-American Activities Committee. They wanted Robinson to denounce Paul Robeson. Robeson, this was in that book, Truth, and it was so confusing. Yeah. Between Robinson and Robeson, they're They're so so close. close. Yeah. I could not read it when I was almost... You know, going sleepy. Right, so. you got to be alert. <laughs> Robeson was an American bass baritone player. He was on the stage. He was a film actor. He was also a professional football player. So he was, he wow. reminded me of Maya Angelou, but yeah. the male version. He was pretty well-rounded. Right. In 1946, he founded the American Crusade Against Lynching Organization. He believed, you know, that a fraternity of sorts, what, what he was creating, needed to be um, started to end the horrific practice of lynching, which was all too common here. He had support from Albert Einstein, wow, Joseph Curran, Canada Lee, Lena Horne, and Oscar Hammerstein II. So pretty big names. That's a lot kind of supporting yeah. him. Robeson also believed in trade unionism and some communist concepts, which this was not the time to right. have any, Definitely any not. of those yeah. socialist ideals. But on June 20th, 1949, he spoke at, at the Paris Peace Congress saying, We in America do not forget that it was on the backs of white workers from Europe and on the backs of millions of blacks that the wealth of America was built, and we are resolved to share it equally. We reject any hysterical raving that urges us to make war on anyone. We shall support peace and friendship along all nations, with Soviet Russia and with People's Republic. So as you can imagine... He immediately was blacklisted. They denied his passport, so he couldn't travel for his concerts. Robeson didn't understand why foreign countries shouldn't be able to hear about our mistreatment of blacks in the United States. When they subpoenaed Robinson, like I said, it's confusing. It's confusing. A lot of, yeah. Um, a lot of R's. To comment on Robeson's comments at the Paris speech, Robinson testified that if the statements were true, if accurately reported, they were silly. While it was... Obvious, he didn't agree with Robeson's philosophy. He used that platform when he had when he was subpoenaed to point out the truth behind the racism in America instead of completely throwing Robeson under the bus. He commented that no single black person could talk for everyone. And while Robeson might have had communist beliefs, Robinson pointed out that the blacks were angry before its creation in the United States. So clearly, civil rights leaders had different strategies, and they often disagreed amongst themselves, but they did it in a respectful fashion, which I admire. We need some of that. Robinson pointed out that African Americans would be agitated until there were no more Jim Crow laws. I felt like his testimony wasn't so much, you know, critical of Robeson, but attacked the larger problem that we have here. His conviction was to improve the quality of life for all African Americans, and he spoke honestly, not necessarily defending Robeson, but also not bad-mouthing him. Robeson had a difficult life after he was blacklisted, yet he sure. sent Robinson a letter a few years later telling him to continue to speak out against Aww, oppression. I know. So good, yeah. So still working together right. for the common Even though good. the view, views might differ. Yeah, Exactly. Differed greatly, too, not just a little bit. When he retired from baseball, he used his fame and celebrity status to continue the fight for racial equality. Robinson would write, even at times as a ghostwriter. He had publications in the New York Post and in the New York Amsterdam paper. He would attend events where he could speak about racism and inequality in America. 
Robinson was on the board for the NAACP for a time and led a number of fundraisers for various civil rights efforts. He also settled into a job with Chalk Full of Nuts. <laughs> have you ever heard of that? I have not. <laughs> I had to look it up. Where he traded in his uniform for a suit oh, in no. 1957. I guess it was a perfect fit for him. He, yeah. You know, they loved him. They right. could use him with promotions. And, you know, it was a higher-up position. Yeah. But he also did a lot of traveling for it. He fit in perfectly, making it a smooth transition. Probably my favorite story in this entire book, that book, True, was um, about a company picnic. Because every year they had, you know, chock full of nuts would have a company picnic. Remember those days? Do they still do those? Well, yeah, Brian's company used to. We They used to do it at least Before farms. COVID. Yeah. Oh, okay. Before, yeah. And it was so fun. The kids it loved is, it. It is, Yeah. So at this at the company picnic, they'd have a friendly game of softball between the employees <laughs> and the executives. Boy, he's probably yeah. just yep. You'll have to read the book to get the full story. Yeah. But the employees had a pitcher who had played semi-professionally. After a few pitches, it was clear that none of the executives were going to be able to get a hit. Oh, His man. pitches were just too right. fast. And right. So anyway, Jackie approaches the guy and he reminds him that they were just there to have a good time. Sure. And the guy <laughs> responds back with, "That's not how I pitch." Wow. So Jackie said that if he struck him out, you know, this fast pitcher struck him out, he could pitch however he wanted for the rest of the game. So he, you know, pitches, and they couldn't find that first ball. Wow. He's (laughs) such a diplomat. He is. He is. And talk about confident. Yeah. So they couldn't find that first ball, and the guy was like, pure luck, you know, it's a fluke. So he did it again, and once again, they didn't find that second ball. I got such satisfaction reading that Jackie Robinson told that guy, now you see the difference between being a professional and a semi professional. <laughs> Only because he had been he pushed such, it. Yeah. He pushed it. Yeah. You know. This is super sweet too. When I was looking up chalk full of nuts, I love right? that name. I know. Um, coffee cans, they honored Robinson for his 75th anniversary of oh. breaking the color barrier, which was this year. They offered specialty cans in select stores and online, and a portion of the that's proceeds... Still, sorry to interrupt, so that's still being made. Apparently it is. Wow. It's coffee. It's like in a okay. bright yellow can, and it's got some, um, you know, some red okay. stuff to that's it. That's really cool. But part of the proceeds from this special run were being donated to the Jackie Robinson Foundation. So I just love that they're still supporting him. Right. In 1957, Robinson wrote a letter to Nixon thanking him for comments he had made during a speech. I think Nixon had pointed out that there, you know, was still a lot of work to be done for racial equality, that no man should be penalized or favored solely for their race, color, religion, or national origin. And that was something that Robinson could get behind. Yeah. So much so that he worked on his campaign. Oh, I, in nineteen sixty. I know wow. all sorts of tidbits that I didn't know. He withdrew his support though in nineteen sixty eight. So this guy, I mean, he definitely just went wherever Where his was, heart told him. Yeah, I admire that he wrote Senator Kennedy a letter in nineteen fifty nine applauding a speech that Kennedy had given. I love that Robinson constantly gave compliments for behavior that he respected. And was always crossing party lines. It seemed that he didn't care so much about party affiliation. He just wanted to come together and work to improve right. our country. Which, how can you not give yeah. out? Yeah, for sure. He pointed out areas where improvement was needed, but he also was quick with compliments when he felt they were deserved, regardless of party affiliation. And 
I would say we need a little of that today. I think, I mean, compliments go, uh, I mean, you know, sincere, authentic. Absolutely. Go far away. And just being um, respectful of both sides. I I just would love to see less them Mm -hmm. versus us, you know, and division and just more oneness. We're all humankind. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) His letters and the importance of the cause increased with the murder of Medgar Evers. He was a decorated army sergeant who stormed the beaches of Normandy in 1945, survived D-Day, but was killed in his own driveway one day by a white supremacist. After the war, he took advantage of the GI Bill, graduated from college. When he saw the civil rights movement gaining some traction, he left his job as an insurance salesman and became the first field secretary for the NAACP working in Mississippi. He always promoted peace. But sadly, his life ended with such violence. Evers started receiving death threats after he helped James Meredith become the first African-American to attend the University of Mississippi. Evers worked to dismantle segregation. He led peaceful rallies and held voter registration drives throughout the state of Mississippi. The thing that's so sad to me about this is that this is is still going on. Right. We still have that same problem. Yeah. It's just crazy. One night when Evers arrived home to his wife and his three kids, a white supremacist shot him in his driveway as he was getting out of the car. (sighs) To add to the rage, the man who shot him had two trials for the crime. So he shouldn't have been out there. Oh, I mean, this is cut and dry, but because it was white males in the jury, he got off both times. The first time, it ended in a deadlock. The second one was a hung jury. But his wife, Merrilee Evers, who later became the first woman to chair the NAACP, mm. kept pressure on authorities to reopen the case. Thank goodness she yeah, kept good. on it. Finally, in 1994, now they started this process in 1990, but it took four years of red tape to work on. And that's on. not that long ago. Ugh, no, like. I know. So finally, in 1994, Beckwith mm. was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. I would have known the story of Evers had I watched the movie Ghosts of Mississippi, where I read that it was depicted. I'm going to break down and watch that. Plus, I've requested a documentary called The Last White Night, where a former civil rights activist was assaulted 40 years earlier and goes back to interview his attacker. The man who attacked him was the son of Evers' murderer, and he also was a Klansman. The two of them meet 40 years later, and I'm, I'm anxious to see if there's any growth or right, reconciliation. Where heart, his yeah. heart is, yeah. All that to say, that only increased Robinson's correspondence with, with people. <laughs> he exchanged sure. letters with Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., the president of the NAACP, Roy Wilkins, just to name a few. Robinson would note that um, he and Malcolm X had different tactics, but they wanted the same result. He also noted that he often disagreed with Wilkins, the president of the NAACP at the time. The two would often go back and forth, but bottom line, these brave men all shared the same goal. Robinson joined the NAACP board in 1957 and resigned in 1963 because he disapproved of Wilkins' leadership. I just cracked up at... At least he follows his beliefs. Oh, totally follows his art. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He felt like Wilkins wasn't doing enough to get young, fresh people to join the crusade, which I understand that argument. Robinson saw the importance of having young people, young leaders prepared when the elders were ready to pass the torch. 
He had his children by his side as he listened to the 1963 I Have a Dream speech, a way to not only show their support as a family, but it also set, you know, Robinson was setting an example for his children. He and his wife, Rachel, would host jazz concerts in their home to raise bail money for arrested protesters. I, I, I just love that. Yeah. Their concerts actually became an annual event and would eventually help fund the Jackie Robinson Foundation, primarily to provide scholarships. One concert in 1963 had Duke Ellington, wow. Dizzy Gillespie, Billy Taylor, and Dave Brubeck. I just love that they took something so simple, you know, a concert yeah. out on the lawn, and used it to fight oppression. Right. It brought people together with Jackie and Rachel organizing, the musicians performing, and the people willing to pay to be part of it. It's just, I think it's beautiful. When Robinson was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame, he donated all of the proceeds from the dinner to the SCLC, which is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Their voter registration drive, something that Evers had worked on and stood for, the man that was had been murdered in his driveway. After Bloody Sunday, Robinson sent a telegram to President Johnson and asked him to put an end to the violence before it escalated. Once again, something simple. Right. Yeah, he took the time to do it. Yeah, stood up for something. You exactly. Know. In October 1958 and April 1959, he and Martin Luther King Jr. both served as honorary chairs in Washington for the Youth March for Integrated Schools. I think that's, I uh, think yeah. that's super sweet. As I noted, Robinson didn't hide his thoughts or beliefs. He had many friends and acquaintances that he agreed with them on everything, or anything, in some cases. With Malcolm X, they didn't agree on much besides the hope for equality. Robinson disagreed with Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, and the Black Muslims with their divisive approach. He felt they were pushing for division, which was the opposite of his vision. Robinson supported Cassius Clay and his conversion to Islam, which I thought was interesting. Well, someday maybe we need to yeah. look into Muhammad Ali. He took a peaceful yet bold stand. I mean, he, you definitely know where he stood. Even Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't above Robinson's questioning. <laughs> One time he asked King about, you know, some fundraising practices and some comments regarding the SCLC and their leadership, as well as criticizing the NAACP. Robinson took over the fundraising chair of the NAACP in 1957. He traveled all over the country trying to get local chapters to help them with the cause. In January alone, so in one month, he visited nine cities. Wow. That's, that's a lot. A lot. Traveling a back town, then. Yeah. It's not like today you can no, just zip, zip, I know. Zip. He was hosted to a dinner by the New England Bowling Association, which I got a kick out of that. Yeah. Are there still bowling leagues? I don't know. So I was curious I about My that, mom was in a bowling league back then. I think it was 70s. part of the time. Yeah. yeah. So the New England Bowling League um, hosted a dinner for him, and all the proceeds were donated to the Freedom Fund, which I'm assuming oh. was, you know, free people that had been arrested. He visited the Elks, which wow. totally cracks me up, because yeah. I don't know if my dad is still a member of the Elks, but, yeah, sign of the time. He was just really a bold man. <laughs> he was. The, the fellowship organization of the Elks, they provided scholarships for minority students. So definitely a lot of good things that they did. Um, Robinson also offered suggestions, too, at his speeches. He inspired boxer Floyd Patterson to stand up against segregated seats during his fight, when he had fights. 
He also called out a small group of black protesters who were protesting a white restaurant in Harlem. He wasn't upset about the protest itself, but they were shouting anti-Semitic words, and Robinson would not tolerate that. To him, he was like, he pointed out that the fight was for all men to be treated equal, and they were just stooping to their level in doing that. So I love that he called them out when when they were not... Right, he could have just... When they were not taking the high ground. In 1957, Robinson was awarded the Springer Medal. In 1957, Robinson was awarded the Springer Medal from the NAACP. He was the first athlete to receive one since it began in 1914. Evers actually had received one in 1963. The Springer Medal is awarded annually. I had to look it up. Yeah, I'm not familiar. um, For outstanding achievements by an African-American to improve their conditions. The award was created in 1914 by Joel Elias Spinger, and the gold medal they receive is worth $100. He left $20,000, which in today, in 2021, actually was worth $390,000 in his will for the NAACP to keep it going. Yeah. Lena Horne, Rosa Parks, Colin Colin Powell, Maya Angelou, who you talked about, John Lewis, who we've talked about, are just a few of the recipients. And I think we need to do an episode just on on the recipients. Yes, exactly. On the honorees. Maybe next Juneteenth. That would be very cool. In February 1958, he spoke at a rally in Mississippi for one of their NAACP branches. The title of that talk was Patience, Pride, progress, which he encouraged those in attendance to not lose hope and to continue the fight to end discrimination. I just, I, I, that, I feel like I could get a tattoo with that. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote letters from, you know, everyone from President Truman to Nixon opposing apartheid in South Africa, discussing sit-ins, black power, the Vietnam War. Robinson was actually supportive of the war, unlike Dr. King. Robinson was also an editor for Our Sports in 1953 and contributed to five of their publications. He wrote about his experience in 1945 when he and Sammy Jethro and Marvin Williams were invited to try out, only to hear absolutely nothing. Crickets afterwards. In 1960, he called out an article in The Post called The Private World of the Negro Ballplayer. Robinson didn't like the stereotypes it promoted. He credited, um, Robinson was credited in a column, though, for blazing the trail for Charlie Stifford to be able to play in the PGA. So the Professional Golf Association. Wow, yeah. Before 1960, his application had constantly been denied. When it was finally accepted and he was allowed to play, it opened up some golf courses for a more diverse clientele, but still way too slow to, to spread. Robinson received the NAACP Annual Merit Award for his contribution integrating baseball. He also encouraged companies to boycott businesses that refused oh. to hire blacks. Yeah. That was way that's before. So, that's really yeah. before the time. For, it's like, yeah. It was way before my, I have a Goods Unitas app. Okay. Which if you don't have that, it's a yeah. really good app on your phone that you can just see different businesses, different, you know, even celebrities are right. on there. And how they feel. So you can choose where you spend your money. Right. In 1964, he co-founded the Freedom National Bank in Harlem, a black-owned and operated bank set up to improve communities for the lower-income black communities. It survived until 1990. 
1970, he created the Jackie Robinson Construction Corporation to build lower-income housing. I know. I didn't know any of this for the African-American community. And Rachel continued to help with the corporation even after his passing. Hmm. Rachel also founded the Jackie Robinson Foundation in 1973, a nonprofit that has dispersed millions in grants and direct support to 1,800 scholars so far. The foundation preserves his legacy through minority college scholarships, online college success platforms, and the Jackie Robinson Museum in New York City. I feel like we need to go to New York and check this out. That's on my bucket list, New York. (laughs) According to Della Britton, the president of the Jackie Robinson Foundation, for nearly 50 years, the Jackie Robinson Foundation has worked to level the playing field in the workplace, having distributed over $100 million in aid to talented college students who have gone on to become leaders in their professions and communities. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What a legacy. Exactly. I think, though, what inspires me the most with Jackie Robinson, his patience, his honesty, and his perseverance. Yeah, he was a great ball player, obviously, but that's only one part of Jackie Robinson. He used that fame to really push the civil rights movement and in his own way, on his own terms. Sometimes it was taking his kids to a protest. Other times it was giving a speech. But I think most often it was with his persistent letter writing. I mean, <laughs> to the point where they made a book of all right. of his letters. I think people wrote letters yeah, more, more back so then. back then. Yeah. Yeah. My mom was kind of a letter writer. <laughs> I mean, Which like we the, can email. Well, like to the newspaper, you yeah, know, about different yeah. things. But. <laughs> awesome. And while we don't have the voice or, inf- I mean, I don't have the voice or influence of Jackie Robinson, we could still do our part in speaking out. We can make a difference with where we shop, right. who we choose to support how we spend our time, and definitely how we treat others. Plus, we all can write letters, we can send email. It's something that I need to work on taking the time to do. There's still so much to a story, but I definitely can't make it a three-parter. So I'm just going to have to call it good. The story of Jackie Robinson made me both angry and hopeful, which is probably a good thing. Anger is a great motivator to speak up for what's right. I feel like we can't let what he started burn out. We all have to do our part to continue to raise our voices until all men and women are treated equally. We've come a long way, but we definitely have a long way to go. A life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. Jackie Robinson. This last week we went to see Heim. It was an outdoor concert and there were two dads oh. killing it as parents. Yeah. Probably haven't heard of Heim. No. Okay. There are, yeah, you need to look them up there and listen to them. You actually have heard them because I'm sure I played them in class when okay. like a cool down song type of thing. But um, three sisters, they're they're just great energy. They're a great band. There were two dads at the concert killing it uh-huh. as parents. And uh-huh. I wanted to run up and tell them how impressed I was. But I shied away because I feared that they would think I was saying you know, that they were great considering they were two dads. Right. So not the case. Aww. They were great parents, period. Yeah. So I took it as a sign that I needed to say something when we literally walked past them as they were showing their daughter the kayakers out on the Deschutes with the sun setting. Aww. I had to tell them that I was so impressed with how attentive and just what amazing parents they were. To think that I almost didn't extend that compliment because I was scared is pretty ridiculous, you know, but it's truth. Yeah. So I recently read an article about a black dad, Sean Williams, who regularly got 
good dad, in air quotes, compliments when he was out with his baby daughter. He's in a predominantly white section of Long Island and started to wonder if the comments were because of a stereotype that black dads are absent fathers. So he asked some other dad friends if they experienced the same thing, and sure enough, they said yes. I read an article in the Optimist Daily that cited a 2013 study by the National Center for Health Statistics that found that black fathers are quite the opposite of absent. They were more likely to bathe, dress, or diaper their kids daily and more likely to eat their daily meals with their children versus their Hispanic or white counterparts. I know they didn't intend to bash on fathers regarding race or color, but just to educate us with stereotypes that are out there. Williams decided to launch the Dad Gang, oh. which is what I love. So the Dad Gang is on Instagram, and it's a, an account to prove that the stereotypes are inaccurate. It supports a number of online websites and events, including Strolling with My Homies, Aww. which was a nationwide tour that launched last June. Williams told the Washington Post, the purpose of the stroll was to visually demonstrate the strength of black fatherhood. I don't think anyone has seen black dads congregate and connect on such a large scale like that. It became a real movement after that. That's cool. Super, super cool. Once again, it's a pretty simple thing. Simple way to improve the world. He just brought people together and and put it on social media. But it's making a positive out of a negative. He said, I hope it sticks in the minds of those who thought we were missing in action. That despite... What the world says, despite the stereotypes that are out there, we are dad goals. The dad gang. I got to follow them on Instagram. There is in this world no such force as the force of a person determined to rise. The human soul cannot be permanently chained. W.E.B. Dubois. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.